Awesome. All right, let me, let me, before we get into Ephesians chapter 3, I just want to take a moment and express my condolences to all the Cowboys fans uh, here this morning. I can't for just a second. Yeah, I, mi- I, 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 I missed most of the game, but boy, I caught that last throw from Aaron Rodgers, and oh my gosh, how, how, I know it must have been very embarrassing for the Cowboys fans to see that, you know, that was just perfect, just right, you know, right on the edge like that. That was, felt so good, felt so good. <laughs> All right, uh, here we go. Let, before we do the scripture, let's just get ready for the scripture. Let's warm up a little bit. What is all this about? Ephesians chapter 3. Here's the thing. Uh, the book of Ephesians, amazing book. It's like the racial reconciliation book of the Bible. Just this amazing writing here. Paul is writing. Remember last week we talked about Dr. King's letter from a Birmingham jail? Okay, well, it, Ephesians is a letter from a Roman jail. So Paul is writing this letter from a Roman jail cell. He wrote Philippians, Ephesians, Colossians, Galatians, yes. He wrote those four, called the prison, from a jail cell in Rome. And when you look at Ephesians, there are some things that are really prominent that stand out like so they're really important. So when you want to talk about racial reconciliation and making a difference and what works and what's God's plan for it, the book of Ephesians is the place to go. And you see a couple things that really stand out. And one of them, obviously, is prayer. There's two super important prayers in the book of Ephesians. And this is what we're going to talk about today. So Paul begins by saying, okay, I'm going to pray for you. And then you'll see this in a second. It's on the back of your bulletin. It'll be on the screen. And say, so I'm going to pray for you. And all of a sudden he stops. He's like, wait a minute. Y'all, y'all know why I'm in prison, right? So he stops and he explains it. And then he picks up with the prayer in verse number 14. So let me just say, explaining this, why is he in prison? What exactly uh, took place that he finds himself in prison? All right. Uh, maybe some of you know, maybe some of you don't. So here's Paul's history just so we can hit the ground running. His history is uh, Paul's religion uh, basically made him a racist. So he wouldn't eat, drink, worship, speak, connect with people who were not uh, of his religious persuasion and of his race. Okay? And he was very um, adamant about it. He's very angry. He's very filled. Acts actually does a great job of kind of painting this picture for us of the anger and bitterness. We're told in the book of Acts he was going around destroying the Christian church. Now, why would he be doing that? Because he didn't like what Jesus was doing. Jesus is out and he's, you know, mixing with people, all kinds of people. Jesus is doing this. And he, he, didn't, he didn't like that at all. We're told that he was dragging men and women off to jail. And then we're told he was breathing out murderous threats. So he's very, 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 very angry. And so why does he find himself in jail now? Well, he made this radical change, which is what we want to talk about this morning. He was accused of bringing somebody into a segregated house of worship of a particular race that they shouldn't have been in a particular place. Now, he didn't do it, but he was accused of it. And a riot broke out. A riot broke out as a result. Like, they're getting ready to kill him. And the Romans stepped in, and like, in the beginning, they were like, okay, well, let's, let's do it. Let's kill him, you know. Uh, and he said, wait a minute, I'm a Roman citizen. And then he begins this long trek. It took a couple years for him to get to Rome where he writes this letter. So he wants to remind everybody, hey, I want to remind you, I'm in prison, and the reason I'm in prison is because I have been radically changed. Now, has anybody ever heard this? People don't change. Anybody ever heard that saying before? People don't change. Maybe you know somebody 
that you say, yeah, they're the epitome of that. People don't change. Maybe you're sitting next to them. Don't nudge them right now. No elbows. Some, sometimes that happens when I'm up here speaking. I say, people don't change, but boom. Okay? Paul changes. And the question is, why? How does he change? So we're going to read this. I'm going to ask if uh, Elise and Heather, they're going to come out and join me, and they're going, to, they're going to read the Scripture this morning from Ephesians chapter 3. It'll be on the screen behind me. And... Um, It'll be in the back of your bulletin as well. Okay, so here we, here we go. Can everybody say uh, good morning to Heather and Elise? Good morning. Wonderful. For this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles, surely you have heard about the administration of God's grace that was given to me for you. That is, the mystery made known to me by revelation, as I have already written briefly. This mystery is that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body, and shares together in the promise in Christ Jesus. His intent was that now, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known. For this reason, I kneel before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ, and to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Elise and Heather. All right. So how does this, how does this happen? As you heard, just read, uh, Paul says this is a mystery. It's a mystery about how he could change and change so powerfully and radically on the inside. There's, there, there was a line in here that he says, uh, I pray, there's a prayer, I'm praying that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit, the Holy Spirit, in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts. This is what we've been talking about. He says, we all have a sin nature. That was Ephesians chapter 2. What is a sin nature? Sin nature is sarks, S-A-R-X. What is sarks? Means that we're curved in on ourselves. Means that what sin basically is, is that there's some self-centeredness. And Everybody I know who at least is sane, okay, would say, yeah, yeah, I got some self. I might not be as self-centered as the other person over here, but I do have some self-centered. That's sin. That's what sin is. It's, self, it's self-centeredness. So what the sarks does is it creates divisions, creates walls. That's what it does. That's all the time, over and over again. So where does racism come from? Where does injustice? It comes from the sarks inside of us that, self, that curved in inside of us to do that. And so we need an antidote to that. We need an antidote, right? Some of you have seen the famous Saturday Night Live. I love that Saturday Night Live thing, right, with the cowbell, right? I got a fever, right? And the only thing is going to solve this is I got to have more cowbell. Well, here's the thing. This is what it says here, that we all have this thing inside of us called a sarx, and we need an anti-sarx, like an antibody, right? right? We, we, we need, we need the anti-sarks, and that's Jesus Christ. And it says that Jesus Christ comes into our hearts and goes way down deep in our hearts and begins to pull out 
that self-centered is in, inside of us. So Sark's is self-centeredness. In Jesus, agape love. So when you see love, it says love right here, love, right? So what is love? What's agape love? Agape love is pure, 100% selflessness. And so those go at battle. And we need the power of God to work inside of us because what's going to happen? We can make all kinds of laws and we can talk about all kinds of stuff, right? But what's going to keep happening over and over like a big merry-go-round is we're just going to keep leaning, we gravitate towards creating divisions. This is what we do. Even when we try not to, we do over and over again. And so this is what Ephesians here is speaking about. Now, I want to talk about a couple words in here that are really important. The first one is, is in verse number 10. It says, if you're following along there, it says in verse number 10, his intent, speaking of Jesus, Jesus' intent was that now through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known. So in other words, saying is, is that the church should be the leader, and it should be the leader in this, his intent, so his purpose, Jesus' purpose was the church would take the lead and do what? The manifold wisdom of God. What is the manifold wisdom of God? The word manifold means multicolored, multifaceted. Isn't that interesting? I think that's fascinating. So God's intent was the church would take leadership that God has a multicolored multicolored mission in this world, This is his intent. And in John chapter 17 is a very important prayer, everybody. It's actually an entire chapter, an entire chapter that is a prayer of Jesus Christ. He's about ready to be arrested. He's going to be arrested. He's going to be um, accused wrongly, right, in injustice, and he's going to die on a cross. And so right before all that happens and he leaves the upper room, he prays a whole chapter-long prayer. And you know what the focus is of his prayer? Reconciliation. Oneness. God, make them one. It was God's intent. And so here again, Paul returns to this. Now, sometimes, and I think this, 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 I want to de- deal with a myth that's out there. A lot of times it's talked about this, that Christianity is a religion of Western Europe. It's a white person's religion of Western Europe. So let's talk about that, can we? Where are the most church-going Christians on the planet? Where are they? Africa. Okay. The most church-going Christians in the world are in Africa. Where's number two? China. China's right on Africa's heels and will probably, by projections, overtake Africa soon. Number three? Probably South America. All right? So what God had envisioned was a multicolored movement of reconciliation in the world. That was his vision. That's what we see playing out. And it is a fact, everybody, that the church of Jesus Christ to this day is the most diverse institution on the planet. And that's what it means, the manifold wisdom of God. We see the manifold wisdom of God playing out. Now, next week, we're going to really get into some practical steps. Okay? And I want to say this. Some of you maybe were here the first week. And you heard me talk about New Year's resolution. And does anybody know what the number one resolution is in 2017? That's right. Get in shape, lose, lose weight. Up by 13% this year, like way up there. We really want change. And do you remember what I said about trainers? Like if you had a trainer and you like love your trainer all the time, that you should do what? Fire your trainer. Why should you fire your trainer? Because you can't love your trainer all the time. There's got to be some times that you just can't stand this person that's training you because they're irritating you so much because, because change doesn't happen without challenge, right? We all tracking? All right, I'm reminding you of this because of this. Next week, I might say some stuff, okay? <laughs> I'm just trying to, I'm trying to get ahead of, I'm trying to get ahead of the train. Is that okay? 
I had somebody email me right after the first message in this series and say, I didn't like that message. And I said, okay, bullseye. I hit the target. <laughs> I mean, that's, that's, everybody has to be challenged. So it's very sarksy, right? It's very sarksy of us to say, yeah, man, go ahead, challenge all those people, right? <laughs> challenge them. And the reality is, is all of us have this curved in on ourselves, right? We all have it. So all of us need to be challenged. If all of us are challenged, then we all together change. Okay. Today, I really want to focus on this importance of prayer because prayer precedes reconciliation. As you look in the Bible, as you look at history, great reconciliation efforts, Prayer proceeds in a major way. Prayer is so important. You see this in the book of Ephesians. Remember Ephesians, the racial reconciliation book of the Bible, and here you have two extremely prominent prayers. So, so what God is trying to say to us is prayer's board. So if you're fired up, here's the deal. If you're fired up about reconciliation, then you've got to get yourself fired up about prayer because God says this is the way, this is the path. I'm like, okay, we want to do everything else, but we're not going to do the prayer in part. God's like, no, nah, it's not going to work. You've got to have prayer. Think of William Wilberforce, who has been called the greatest social reformer in the history of the world. The stuff that this guy did is amazing. We're going to talk about him eventually, but not today. The only thing I want to tell you about today is, is this, prayer. He had a lot of prayer going for him. He was doing a lot of praying himself. He had a whole group of people around him that were praying for him. John Wesley, the great revivalist John Wesley, it is said that Wesley's last letter, his last letter that he ever wrote before he died was to William Wilberforce. And he said, don't give up. Don't give up. And I need you to know this. I need you to know that you are fighting against hell itself. It's not a direct quote, but basically I'm summing up for you. He said, you're going to get worn out because you're going to prayer. You're going to need, you're going to need prayer. Okay, there's two great prayers in here. Prayer and reconciliation are inseparable. They're eternally linked. This Monday, tomorrow night, we're going to have a prayer vigil at the, uh, at the Grace offices in Boston, in Boston. You can read about it in your bulletin for all the details. I want to encourage you to come out. What I just said a few moments ago, right? If you're really fired up about racial reconciliation, then you've got to be fired up about prayer. We're going to have prayer. We're going to have scriptures. We're going to have stories. Some of you have been to our office before there in Boston, and you know we only have about 45, 50 parking spaces. So the good news is this. There's a church right up the street, Mount Olivet United Methodist Church. They have a big parking lot. We're going to run a shuttle service. It's going to be fantastic. You can read about it in your bulletin. Here's the thing. It'll be inconvenient, right? But change is challenging, isn't it? But we want to encourage everybody to come out and pray because we need, we need to pray. Now let's talk about these two prayers because what's in these prayers are really important. Ephesians chapter 1 is a prayer for enlightenment. So what it, what it, what's happening there? Paul says what's really important here in the issue of reconciliation is that we need to be enlightened to the mission of God. Our eyes need to be open. What do we need to know? The second prayer is in Ephesians chapter 3 that we're looking at today. It's about experience. In other words, what you need to do. So prayer number one is what you need to know. Prayer number two is what you need to do. What you need to know, what you need to do. Our eyes need to be open. So I want to talk about for a few moments before we hear a story from a family about what repentance is because we've talked a lot about repentance and we've been born into this deadness of sin in our lives and so how do we make that right and if we're going to talk about repentance we have to talk about Mr. Repentance in the Bible and his name is John the Baptist he is the forerunner of Jesus Christ he's his front man and he comes along and with fire and brimstone anybody ever been to a fire and brimstone church anybody okay four or five of you I heard an amen over there it's good it's good 
We know that you've been there. Okay? He is fire and brimstone. He's wearing camel hair. He's got a big, he's like a biker for Jesus kind of guy. You know what I'm saying? He's got camel hair. He's got the big leather belt. He's like taking locusts and just, just biting off their heads and eating them. He's a tough guy. Okay. That's what I'm trying to say. But he was Mr. Repentance. He went around preaching repentance, repentance, repentance. Do you know what repentance means? Do you know what that means to repent before God? A lot of times we think about repentance, we think of it just in an individual way. I need to repent. I got to get right with God. I've got to repent. And it is very individual, but it is also very corporate, very social. Has more to do than just my world right here. And this is what John the Baptist makes clear in Luke chapter 3. He says this A group of people said to him, Okay, John the Baptist. How do we repent? Spell it out for us. He says, one, two, three. Ready? So number one, he says, social justice. He said, you've got a bunch of people around you who are severely disadvantaged, right? They don't have the basic necessities of life. They don't have food. They don't have clothing. How do you repentance? What do you do? You have to, you have to deal with that. You have to do something about that. That's what repentance means. Whoa. Number two, he says corporate justice. Businesses are exploiting people. They're taking advantage of people. You need to do something about that. That's what repentance means. Do something about people who are being taken advantage of and being exploited. Number three, law enforcement. He said the police are wrongly accusing and harassing people. What does repentance mean? It means you do something about that. So what is repentance? Social justice, corporate justice, police justice. Did you know that? Did you, do the people around you, you all are very smart, so you guys all knew that. My question is, the people around you, your neighbors and your coworkers and your friends, they know that? Are they clear that that's what repentance means? Because I find a lot of times when I say, hey, you need to repent of your sins, people kind of bristle. You ever seen that happen before? Anybody? Do you think those things, is that okay to say repent of those things? Like when you treat people with injustice and... You take advantage of people. Would you say that's a sin and needs to be repentant? Because that's what, that's what John the Baptist says. Here's my thing I want to say to you. You and I are surrounded with people every day who absolutely love, love the mission of Jesus and love repentance. They just don't know that that's the mission of Jesus. If I was the devil, and some people think I am, what I would, what I would, seek, what I would seek to do is I'd muddy the waters about the mission of Jesus Christ. And I'd make sure that the message goes out unclear. Do you follow me? But here's the message, and this is why Paul prays in the beginning of Ephesians chapter 1. Our eyes need to be open to the true message of Christ, and here's what repentance really is. And what I'm saying to you today is that you are surrounded by people who absolutely love the mission of Jesus. They just don't know it's the mission of Jesus. They have no idea. And so somebody needs to pray. Because the first way it's going to happen is not by you telling them, not by me telling them. It's for us to pray. That's what Paul does. May your eyes be opened. And then for us, God, may my eyes be opened. And then hopefully I speak the right thing, right? And so what people are left with then, everybody, because we're confused about the true mission of Jesus, reconciliation, is we just run from the mission of Jesus because we think that's not the answer. We actually, some of us, think it's the problem. We run from it, and in our own strength and power, we try to make it right, and that doesn't work. Historically, it has not worked. It is the mission of Jesus Christ clearly understood. People will flock to it. So we have these prayers here, one for enlightenment, one for experience. Here's what I need to know. Here's what I need to do. And then in verse 14, 
he finally gets back to his prayer. It's kind of cool. So he pauses. There's a long parenthesis. He's all fired up. And now he gets back to his prayer. And in verse 14, he starts praying. He says, I kneel. And I want to explain one thing before the family comes up to share with us this morning. What does kneeling exactly mean in the scriptures? Is there something powerful about kneeling? Well, maybe, yes, no. It's symbolic of something very, very important. So to kneel in the scriptures means what you are symbolically saying to God is, I don't have the answer. You're symbolically throwing your hands up and say, you know what, I don't have the answer to this. Look, you know, we've got a lot of brain power in the United States of America. We are some kind of smart. We don't seem to have the answer, do we? Like if the rest of the world is looking at the leader of the free world for the answer on reconciliation, they might need to look somewhere else. And we might need to look somewhere else too. And maybe we need to look up, and that's what kneeling means. Kneeling says, you know what, God? We're trying. We don't have the answer. So what does it mean to kneel? It means that, God, you have the answer, and we're humbly coming before you and asking help us. I read a book about uh, General Patton, right? You all remember General Patton from World War II? Man, he's just, he's a tough guy. He is a tough guy, a tough guy. Arrogant, brash, bold, you know? You got to love him. Unless you're around him, then you hate him, Right? You know what shocked me is in churches all over Europe, he would have his driver stop and he would go into that church and get down on his knees and beg God for help. Wow, if a guy like that can do that, why can't I? Hopefully I have a little bit less pride than he does. Why can't I? Can I do that? He used to keep his chaplains busy all the time writing prayers for him. All the time. God, I need your help. Second thing it shows you, kneeling, shows you I need help. Second thing it shows you is we're really, really serious about this. Like we're not kidding around, God. Are you fired up about racial reconciliation? Here's what the Bible says the plan is. If you're fired up about racial reconciliation, then here's what you do. Joel 1.14. It's not in your bulletin. It's not on the screen. I'm just going to read it to you. Here's where you start, according to God. Written to a group of people who were having a really difficult time in their land. Their land was broken. Declare a holy fast. Well, you know if you're fasting, you're serious, right? Nobody's, nobody's saying amen on that. No, like, what'd you say? What'd you? <laughs> yes. All right. <clears throat> Declare a holy fast, right? If you really want to deal with racial reconciliation, if you're fired up about it, call a holy fast. Call a sacred assembly. Summon all the leaders... And everybody who lives in the land to the house of God and cry out to God for God's help. So uh, we're going to welcome Freddie and his mom, Daisy, and sister Maria. They're going to come out and tell a story. It's going to be really important. I want you to listen. I want you to listen particularly about this. There's a lot of hurt and pain down in our hearts. Hurt people, hurt people. Broken people, break people. You want reconciliation? All of us are carrying things in our hearts. We're angry. We're frustrated. Whatever stuff's been done to us. We're going to have to deal with that through prayer first. So I want you to listen to that in here. It's a wonderful story. So let's welcome uh, this family here this morning. Growing up Hispanic was a mixed bag of emotions. There was the black and white relations, and then there was us, castaways of sorts. We were ridiculed for our socioeconomic status, language, or lack thereof, culture and traditions by both white and black people. This led to feelings of resentment and anger that many times manifests itself as behavior issues in school. 
Over and over again, we were identified as a problem and singled out, targeted as a group, <clears throat> even though problems span across all groups. It was us Hispanics that were sent to anger management class in lieu of an elective. The facilitator kicked off the session by sharing her predictions that at least 80% of us would end up in her office by court order. The next year, I joined a program targeted at getting minority students to college. The students in my group were mostly black. The instructors were black. The conversations were focused on African-American issues. We toured predominantly African-American colleges. I quickly realized that the minority achievement program had a narrow focus and was not designed for Hispanics or other minority groups. Life today as a Hispanic man <clears throat> um, isn't always easy. People say rude, judgmental comments about my language, my home country, and my people. I find it's not worth engaging. I also usually just remain quiet when the conversation turns to those illegal, law-breaking immigrants. When I do choose to challenge this per uh, person on this narrative, they try to convince me, well, you're not like them. Actually, I am a lot like them. My truth is, I entered this country <clears throat> illegally when I was three years old with my mother and sister. I have been discriminated against by every race, color, and creed. I have also been encouraged and supported by every race, color, and creed. The relationships I have built over the years, white, black, Asian, etc., helped me to see that discrimination is a sin issue, not a skin issue. God's peace and healing has allowed me to give, to love and embrace our differences and try to be a little more forgiving when people make uninformed statements. My mom raised me to be a God-loving and fearing person, and I try to remember the words of one of my favorite artists, Lecrae, who says, being right is a distant second to the joy of compassion. Having compassion for all the people, even those I don't agree with, has allowed me to experience God's peace and joy. Through the power of forgiveness, I have had the freedom to be able to replace resentment and anger with love. Okay. Good morning. I came to the United States with my mother and Freddie in October 1986. Freddie was three and I was eight. It was during the time, it was during the Sil Salvadorian Civil War, but that is not what drove us out of our country. My mother describes her life as a girl in El Salvador as difficult. She grew up defending herself all the time. With our father, she found herself in the same place. He destroyed her as a person, as a woman, as a human being. She could not keep us safe from him in El Salvador. After a lot of prayer, she decided that staying in El Salvador was not a way for her to guide us spiritually. She came to the States with, we came to the States with practically nothing with us. We all brought a heavy burden of memories inside, my mom especially. It is hard for her to think back or talk about the journey. My mom describes life in the U.S. as very, very difficult. In El Salvador, she was a professional, a teacher getting her degree. She came here and struggled alone to raise us, working in a restaurant for seven and a half years. She focused all of her energy on Freddie and me, denying herself as a woman or a professional. During this time, she focused on survivals. She was alone. She prayed for wisdom, for wellness, for knowledge, for guidance. When she talks about the time in her life today, she says she had a lot of questions and no one could answer them. Like, if the Bible says this, why did this happen? This is my mom, Daisy, and I will be reading um, her story about, God, about how God answered her questions. 
she began to see that her peace and happiness was dependent on God, not on anyone else. She remembers all the hurt inside was because she wasn't processing pain. She asked God to guide her. She opened herself up to God to start healing her, to let him in. She first had to forgive really forgive. Healing does not mean that she did not still get emotional about memories. It just means that she doesn't remember the pain as much. This is how God led her through forgiveness. The first thing was she needed to want to forgive. She had to take the responsibility. She needed to want to forgive her own for her own peace and well-being. She didn't really want to she, if she didn't really want it inside, she would never change. When we keep the hurt inside, we keep allowing those people to continue hurting us. If it doesn't hurt anyone else, it hurts us. The people who hurt us have forgotten us. We hold on to it. We let them do more damage. The next thing God led her to was to write. She had to look at her heart and choose what to take out, what to write down. No one else could do it for her. She wrote all the things that she could remember that she had done wrong or that people did wrong to her, whatever was hurting her. She was writing and crying and crying. It was hours and hours crying and writing. She confessed to God everything. For her, it was like a therapy. She asked the Holy Spirit to help her remember things she had to confess, writing to God. She said, you remember when such and such did this to me? God, remember this? Remember that, God? In that moment, the pain started to come out. She came back and wrote several times. She knelt down by her bed and just wrote. After she wrote down her hurt and gave it to God, she could start to forgive. She prayed for the person who had hurt her. She asked God to forgive them. She prayed for them because she knew God loves them. Freddie and I also had our journey of forgiveness. My mom taught me to be open with God. She taught me to speak out to God. I remember her saying, call it out to God, voice it, repeat it. When you do this, you are going from your innermost ugly stuff. Feel it and make, make sure it is real. Stop denying it. You have to scream. If you have to scream, scream. Scream it out. Rebuke the enemy. The enemy tries to keep you quiet and not voice it. When it comes out of your mouth, it is more powerful. Before we started to work through what happened in El Salvador and the difficult times here in the United States, communication was tough between the three of us. We were all struggling in areas, but it was hard to talk about it. We had to work within ourselves first um, before we could actually talk it out with each other. We had to forgive ourselves and understand that everything was not our fault. The key my mom always said is not to try to change other people. It is about changing my own heart. My mom did not try to make people, my mom did not try to change the people who hurt her. I can't change the people who do things that hurt me. It is not about the other person. It is about change in me. <clears throat> So this is the last part of my mom's piece. It says, uh, change is difficult. If it is difficult for her to change, it's even more difficult for her to expect someone else to change. She had to empty herself out before God. She didn't want to hold anything back. She knew she had blocked a lot. She knew that. 
The hurt was so intense and so deep, but she let God guide her through it. The process of forgiveness is painful. At the time, her heart was bleeding. After a while, she felt like she had a very tender heart. If you touched her heart, it was very soft and very easy to break. Through the whole process, she was always praying, always fasting, always asking God to help her keep living. It was a process, though. Sometimes she had to go back to that moment and keep repeating and repeating, I forgive this person, I forgive this person. She then would ask God to forgive them, too. Okay, the music team is going to come. We have a special song that we want to sing. I want to say a few words before we do it. I want to clarify something just to focus everybody in one clear direction this morning. The reason I wanted uh, Freddie and Maria and Daisy to share that story is this. We carry pain in our hearts, okay? Don't get lost in any other agendas this morning, okay? Cut me some slack. This is really important. We all carry things in our heart. They hurt. Whether it's bitterness, anger, unforgiveness, we've been mistreated. We got to deal with it. Jesus wants to deal with it. That's all part of the great work that Christ wants to, he first wants to work in our hearts. All over this room, there are memories There's faces, there's names, there's words that you can remember, things that have been said or things that have been done to you. If we're going to have true reconciliation, we're going to have to allow the Holy Spirit, which Paul talks about in Ephesians 3, to come by the power of the Spirit and to work in our hearts. So what Daisy did was this. You know, she, she said the other day, we got together, she says, no one ever, no preacher ever told me, here's what you do biblically, one, two, three, to deal with forgiveness. She said, I prayed. And what the amazing thing is, is God led her through the biblical steps of forgiveness. First, you have to want to. That's a hard thing. My Bible study group talks about that all the time because my guys will be really honest. I don't want to. Forget it. I don't want to. The first thing is you got to pray, God, just help me to want to do that. The second thing that she did is she wrote it down. That's the entire book of Psalms, the biggest book of the Bible. You have to write it down. You have to get it out to God. You have to speak it. You have to voice it. I want to encourage you this morning to do this. So Michaela's going to sing a real special song. We have the four crosses throughout the room. And at the cross, we have these cloths. Now, you can write whatever you want. God knows what that is. But what I want to encourage you, if we really want reconciliation, then we have to deal with what's in our hearts and we have to get it out. We have to put it before God and put it at the base of these crosses and say, God, would you work in my life? Like Paul, who was filled with bitterness and rage and frustration and anger, right? There came a point where it poured out of him and God radically changed him. We're not going to change any other way until we deal with what's in our hearts, Okay. Broken people break people. Hurting people hurt people. We just do it over and over again. So I'm going to pray. And then we're going to stand and we're going to sing. And during the song, if you, if you would like to, if you would like to, you can go to the crosses even while we're doing the song or you can do it after it's over. It's completely up to you. Whatever you'd like to do. I just want to let you know our prayer team's going to be here. And Daisy, who's been through so much and who has poured out so much, she's going to join the prayer team on the wall over here and be happy to pray with anybody, okay? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, 
uh, Lord, this is a heavy, this is a heavy thing because we have experienced pain and injustice. We can think of words right now. We can see a face. We can hear the words. We can see the action that has caused so much hurt in our hearts, and it's hard to get over. We don't even want to, some of us. I know I haven't wanted to. But, Lord, it's got to come out in order for us to be free and healed. So, Lord, help us to want to. Help us to be able to voice it out, to get it out to you. And Lord, I just ask that you would move in every single person's heart and lives because God, as long as we hold that, as long as we hold that unforgiveness, we are prisoners. We are prisoners. We are hurting ourselves. Set us free today, God. Set us free from terrible memories, painful things. Break the chains that bind us. In Christ's name, amen. Thanks for listening to this week's message. Grace Community Church, a church for people who don't go to church, meets on Sundays at 9.30 a.m. and 11 a.m. in Arlington, Virginia. Connect with us anytime at trygrace.org.